Hey, uh, this is Jeremy again. So, I just wanted to do a quick episode this time uh, because I happened upon a couple podcasts and I uh, was thinking about some previous ones that I had seen that were pretty interesting to me and uh, something that seems to be coming up a little bit more and it's just one of those very uh, sort of undecided but interesting to think about sort of topics which is free will. And so there's two uh, scientists that I very much respect, which is Rob uh, Spolsky and Sam Harris. And I saw just now an interview with Rob Spolsky on the Andrew Huberman show. And Sam Harris has done talks with Lex Friedman and uh, Joe Rogan. And I've seen a lot of Sam Harris's stuff prior to that, too. Uh, Him talking about free will and doing debates and stuff as he does and uh, I've thought about this but I haven't necessarily developed a strong opinion about it I'm, I'm starting to gain an intuition based off of some other books that I've read but that but at that point I thought well you know this is kind of a philosophical idea it certainly deals with a lot of what seems to be going on mechanistically in the body but I've always been a little bit um, I've appreciated anyone in the scientific sphere that was skeptical of a completely uh, (laughs) mechanistic and materialistic interpretation of everything just because of that sort of scientific maxim that, you know, maybe you just didn't look over under that rock over there. There's actually a a decent joke that I heard once uh, along those lines, but there's, you know, you don't know that you that a black swan exists until you see one. You know, you can see a million white swans. It still doesn't necessarily preclude logically that that other thing isn't out there. You could potentially mathematically prove that it doesn't exist, even if it could potentially exist, in the same way. So I don't think it's uh, something that's indeterminate, something that shouldn't be explored. It's certainly an interesting idea. I think the way that people relate to their their own uh, decisions. I mean, obviously, the way that you think about your life can be useful, no matter what context you put it in. <clears throat> but I kind of just wanted to think about some ideas that might, in, at least in my own mind, expand upon uh, what they've put forth. So both of them, uh, based on their argument, um, talk about how genes, environment, hormones, beliefs, upbringing, basically all of the things that occur to us in our life that are a a combination of our genetics and our environment, which acts upon our genetics, uh, explain in totality, at least in any way that we can look at what's going on in the the biology and the chemistry of the body, uh, there doesn't seem to be a space to put something like free will, and there doesn't seem to be a biomarker or something like that that you could point to and go, oh, well, clearly that thing's mediating free will because you can turn the dial up and down. Now, uh, you know, you can say that to an extent about consciousness, and uh, Lex Friedman brought that up, or rather Sam Harris brought it up himself, in his conversation with Lex Friedman concerning consciousness, and, and still it's it's a different subject, also one that can really get down in the weeds. I think that it's great that people are trying to tackle such difficult uh, philosophical, ontological, and 
you know, intelligibility type of ideas. Um, and maybe at some other point I can talk about consciousness uh, because there's another good book that I read about that. But that's another thing that, at least as I present it, will be in a uh, state that is decidedly undetermined at this point. Uh, so anyways, talking about them, genes, environment, hormones, beliefs, um, early critical periods, all of these things seem to be very important for uh, brain development and stuff. So there's certainly a massive materialistic mechanistic input, or at least it appears to be so. But the question is, does it go all the way to 100%? And that's where I'm a little bit skeptical, and um, so I'll, I'll talk about that now. So there was a really great analogy that Lex Friedman used whenever he was talking with Sam Harris about how you could think of human beings as network or nodes in a network. So maybe an individual doesn't necessarily have much control over what's happening moment to moment in their decision process or something like that but they are working as as part of a greater entity and you could think about the environmental input that acts upon the genetic input of the individual in that way and although that doesn't give people free will that sort of uh, conceptualization of it it is an interesting different way to look at it and I do think from an informationally um, oriented aspect looking at it in that way is very interesting and although it might not add much to mechanistically what's going on it does add an interesting layer and I haven't uh, fully thought about it or explored that I don't think it it takes it from like 85 percent to 90 or 90 to 95 or something in terms of adding something to explain what's happening with the behavior but obviously, broadly and vaguely, um, there is this idea of many, many different environmental factors being, you know, needing to be computed in order to determine what exactly is happening of our own volition or not. Um, but just as a, uh, that was a quick thing, one way that I like to think about it is that in terms of this network node system or something you could also think about it in terms of everybody are um, kind of on an ocean and I think that I got this metaphor from somewhere else but I can't exactly place it in terms of something else not free will but in terms of the opportunity space and the decisions that people are capable of making so you can say I want to go left or right and then later on down the road realize because of technological innovation because of something else that you learned or something more opportunities and choices open up to you through experience and so when you look at it that way and and you look at it as a totality of all of the individuals uh, you could say uh, a cross-section of say like a generation of people that are all roughly on the same wavelength of experience, roughly, um, that the waters are tending to rise and give a, a larger field of opportunities and possibilities and stuff. Because, you know, if, if you were to look at something like the use of electricity 500 years ago, 
or looking at something like the use of artificial intelligence more than a hundred years ago those aren't even necessarily on people's radars I mean there, there are vague conceptions of of abstract ideas of computation and stuff but generally speaking and certainly in any kind of practical sense it's just not there and so as we trudge along through time there seems to be a difference from one moment in time to the next moment in time and what is mechanistically possible if you want to completely try to reduce it that way and I think that that's an interesting way to look at it as well not only are we distributed in an environment of interacting informational systems each person has their own information that they're working with that they're able to make decisions and stuff with and we rub off on each other and give each other good ideas and bad ideas and stuff but additionally through time through the exposures of those interactions certainly but also um, just through uh, developments that affect the whole system as like a wave that also has a kind of effect and it's still not getting outside of the realm of materialism and reductionism uh, but I do think that these are interesting ideas and to bring it further to where I have uh, my actual skepticism which doesn't need to necessarily have much proof other than a fact that uh, the possibility could be conceived of some sort of different system where there is in fact something that we just didn't notice the interactions between the electromagnetic fields of the heart and the brain various different parts of the nervous system and stuff like that because uh, you know there, there are electromagnetic fields and whether or not these are interacting in any meaningful way uh, is maybe for another time probably not but I mean I, I'm not exactly sure that that's been researched I'd have to look into it what I like to um, something that I read recently too and I've increasingly been thinking about computation information and the way that we deal with information and the way that computers deal with information which is admittingly very different and uh, computers shouldn't be used as a model necessarily but we've often tried to use computers to solve problems that are that interest us as humans and so some of those problems which are you know historically hard are interesting in terms of decision making and if you were to think about the fact that there is some sort of algorithm you know underpinning some sort of predetermined uh, procedure that the brain is doing there's some really complicated computation that has to happen um, that is interesting to think about so I read this book called algorithms to live by and uh, I had previously uh, mentioned the the writer of this book before and I cannot find where I wrote that down but it's a uh, Brian something in any case that the name of the book is algorithms to live by I've I've read a couple of his books the alignment problems another one that's really great and there's these computer algorithm problems uh, called the multi-armed bandit and 
There's there's also one about picking a uh, a secretary, which deals with more constraints on the system. The multi-armed bandit is is more broad. It's literally you're dealing with exploring your environment and then exploiting the information that you have about your environment. And that's typically how we as humans make decisions if you want to think about it in a, a very uh, very specific defined way. You know, where before we make a decision, we need information and context in order to make the decision. Otherwise, we essentially make the decision seemingly at random, but without any uh, meaningful input. Maybe it has to do with, you know, some of these other factors which make it non-random, like our stress level and how we perceive the decision to interact with those things, if having any effect at all. However, um, this is a very difficult computation for computers to do. It's definitely something that, of course, there's a lot of ingenuity and stuff uh, to deal with this. But there's a lot more ambiguity in the decisions that humans typically have to make. And so it's actually a much harder problem than the kinds of uh, ways that you give these problems to computers and make them uh, reducible, make them able to be computated <clears throat> or, or non-intractable. You know, if they can't be dealt with, they're, they're intractable, basically. So <clears throat> uh, the, the fact that some of these things are underlied by things like computations is really interesting to me and how those relate to what we actually do and conceptualizing decisions in that way I think is important. <clears throat> we really do have to decide how much information that we need before we make a decision. And you think about this in terms of business buzzwords and stuff, but there's actual mathematical calculations that you can do based off of whether or not you know how much information is possibly capable of being obtained and how much of a opportunity cost or how much of a loss you take by delaying yourself in trying to take advantage of the information that you have by making the good decision. And so it's thought of broadly as exploration goes down over time and exploitation goes up over time. So the longer you're at the problem of obtaining information, the more primed you should be to settle and make a decision. That's pretty common sense, but I think it's a good way to define the problem and thinking about free will and human decisions as a component of the computation that's happening in the brain, whether or not that's completely determined by physics, chemistry, and biology, and the environmental factors that that go into that, which are also, in their own sense, physics, chemistry, and biology, or physics and chemistry, or just physics. So, one interesting question, and I've got like five of them here, so I think this is going to be a pretty uh, short episode. Basically, I'll go ahead and throw the spoiler here, and uh, as I've kind of alluded to, say, I am not decided on this particular issue. But I think it's interesting to think about it in a slightly different way. And at least at the moment, to still have skepticism. 
And because I respect Sam Harrison, Rob Spolsky, and, uh, you know, they've written really good books. They've done really good talks. <clears throat> uh, Rob Spolsky has free Stanford classes on YouTube. Sam Harris has gigabytes of talks that he's done, debates he's done that are, that are on YouTube. Um, but even besides that, even though they're both very outspoken, it's like I'm, I'm arguing against a very small minority of people here. And I do think that the amount of automation in the system is, is pretty big, but one way to think about it, and, and so I'm undecided, but I would like to give skepticism a, uh, a chance for a while longer until some more information uh, comes to pass. Really quickly, I'll talk about a couple things that they both said that kind of uh, support their argument. So Sam Harris talked about an MRI brain study that he actually did where they looked at people making a decision while they were in an MRI and whether or not they could see uh, anything happening prior to the decision. And then they asked the individual whether or not they made the decision or not at a certain time step. And what they found based off of that setup of an experiment was that the person was undecided, but then their brain lit up in such a way that they had made a decision while they told the experimenters that they were undecided. So what was psychologically happening in their minds, as they described it, was that they didn't know, they had not chosen yet, and yet the brain scan of the MRI, which is magnetic resonance, and it basically tracks blood flow, which points to the fact that neurons are being used because increased blood flow is bringing more nutrients to them. So they're, they're going back to equilibrium by getting the glucose that they lost from being activated in the first place. Some of the problems with MRI is that they're not very area specific and they're not very temporally specific necessarily. So that's one of the things that Sam Harris said and it's a very interesting finding. At least psychologically it looks like maybe people have come to the conclusion subconsciously before their conscious mind is aware of it. And if it's occurring subconsciously, then it's very hard to make a case that that decision was made consciously, that it didn't em emanate from a subconscious place rather than from their own conscious choice. Because the MR MRI scan was seeing something prior to when at least they realized, at least before their consciousness was directed towards observing themselves. And there's some interesting things in here about how the cognitive load of making the decision, depending on how difficult it was, uh, might have narrowed their vision to being able to be very cognizant of themselves. Or maybe it's like trying to juggle something in front of you and behind you at the same time. It's just very hard to be make a decision and be aware of the decision. And there are other issues with this, which is part of the reason why I don't think it's particularly damning evidence. And uh, they, they both talk about, as I said, genes, environment, stuff like that. And uh, 
one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, why does a sense of control um, seem to be a thing at all? I mean, just like consciousness in a way, you could think about animals living in a sense where they don't think that they have control over their their environment or their their decisions. You know, going from one place to another and whatnot. And although it's not causative in any sense, it is interesting to think about the fact that sometimes a sense of control reduces stress. Um, it's just an interesting thing to think about in, in terms of why would this be something that would be beneficial that would even be occurring at all. <clears throat> so I want to get to my, uh, my questions now in terms of some of this stuff and in terms of thinking about what the brain's doing in a more computational, informational kind of way that might separate it in some sense from the purely mechanistic stuff that's happening underneath. I mean, in a certain sense, you've got electrical activity and chemical activity occurring in the brain, um, you know, in tandem. They, they have to be sort of existing together in a certain way. So there is going to be chemicals, but I mean, you could think of, in a sense, the, the chemicals as being like water balloons that are being thrown around by the electrical signals. I mean, and those electrical signals are being initiated by the environment. And the, and the genes and stuff like that are in the prior environment is priming them, but when you get a sensation of seeing something or hearing something or making a decision and you're filtering it through your beliefs, um, you're, you're looking at something in the environment that sort of caused that to happen. The, the proposition of the decision that's put in front of you. Hey, do you want to go to TGI Fridays or Chili's or something like that? Uh, any kind of decision. I'm really interested in the concept of making decisions about bettering your life because what seems to really bother people isn't necessarily having a sense of control in one moment or the next but it's the idea that you don't have the capacity necessarily to change your life for the better that's what people really want out of free will they want to look at their life and go wow this is bad I can do better I'm gonna do better I'm gonna try hard now, some of these arguments against this might be, well, you know, it's the stress hormones and things like that that are sort of, you know, engaging you in, in a way of causing you to want to do better. You know, you feel miserable and you're thinking, I've got to find something that's going to either make this better in terms of me being able to deal with it or make it better in terms of me changing my situation. And uh, so changing the way I think or changing the way I think in order to change my behavior. But thoughts have always seemed to be a bit more ephemeral, if not based in the electrical signaling of the brain, um, being something that's a bit more nuanced. Because you're talking about, um, you know, very complicated systems. <clears throat> and this may be uh, partially a, a lack of understanding on my part, but this is just some ideas that I had about this 
recently based off of mostly looking at uh, or watching videos by Stephen Wolfram on Lex Friedman and Max Tiegmark, who has talks to Lex, but I'm mostly thinking about his book Life 3.0 in terms of defining the kinds of things that generally seem to be happening in the universe like computation, the transmission of information, energy flow in terms of entropy, which as a very short aside, I feel like maybe I didn't I heard a really good metaphor for what exactly entropy is in a more intuitive sense. And so when you touch something that's cold, the energy is equalizing between that cold thing in your hand and that's why it feels cold. It's that the energy is emanating from your hand based off of its relative high, higher energy into the colder thing. The colder thing is not sucking the energy out but it's just the energy suddenly has a slope to go down and it just pours down the slope like a gradient uh, because it just happens to run into something that's lower energy and so that's kind of what entropy is a bit um, and I think that you know that has huge implications for information and complexity obviously because complexity is reversing that process I did want to mention really quickly a uh, book, Transformers, by Nick Lane, which was really amazing, um, kind of outside the scope of this. I just wanted to throw it out there because it talks about uh, how things are, how the Krebs cycle can actually be turned in reverse, and instead of breaking down carbohydrates, it can build carbohydrates, and how there might be implications for this kind of stuff at the early formations of life. In early evolution. So you've got a metabolic process that works very good at creating more complexity in certain circumstances. It's essentially reversing entropy locally and that's a kind of mechanism for that and it's just you know very interesting. It's a it's a good book. So quickly to the five questions. Um, why does automation work? I don't have an answer for this necessarily, but I do think that it's important to answer this anytime there's a claim that there's a complete automation going on and there's no free will happening. Um, why are people generally provoked into improving their own life? You could think of it as a kind of built-in algorithm for the multi-armed bandit for exploring and exploiting. So if you're having a really hard time in life, then your mind is going, okay, I need to keep looking at possibilities. I haven't found the thing yet. I have to keep on moving on. Keep on keeping on. And it might be something, you know, you could think about something computationally like this being a sort of device, a simplified version of whatever's going on, of, of thinking about, okay, why does someone improve their life in a way that can be uh, mathematically explained, you know, formalized in some sort of way. Not to say that that maybe is what's happening, but you could think about it that way. But I think that there needs to be an answer to the question of why do people uh, improve? Why do they get to better points in their life? It's not just the system is handing everything to people or that 
in some way there's just this luck where they keep rolling the dice with you know the determinism really not rolling dice no chance involved statistically so they say um but rather your determinism just tends to guide you down paths of improvement of having hope of finding solutions of seemingly working hard towards goals and then um, seeing them accomplished so intuitively uh, i really sympathize with the feeling that uh, there does seem to be something else going on and i think that that's the most fundamental question the question of is uh is what i'm feeling when i want to succeed some kind of decision that is automated and how does that work in terms of I mean you could easily see how those you know the narrative can be created and the rationalization can be created uh, probably by the prefrontal cortex after the fact but what algorithm is actually working to improve all of our lives you know you could say that everyone's sort of working on an algorithm for self-actualization of becoming the best version of themselves and then sometimes that algorithm can be uh, muted or dulled by profound environmental impacts potentially but that's an important question why does automation work why does it look like we're trying to improve ourselves and being incredibly fooled by it if that's the case which I'm skeptical about and I think that's a question that needs to be answered so, talking about Stephen Wolfram and Max Tigmark here, um, it's an interesting fact that Wolfram, you know, thinks, and it's controversial in physics, as uh, Neil Turok's ideas are controversial, Max Tigmark's ideas are very controversial, and uh, there is a lot of disagreement on, I mean, even whether or not string theory is the appropriate theory to go with, or quantum loop gravity is an appropriate way of looking at quantizing what gravity is and trying to put it squarely with the other forces in some sort of abstract terms. Super complicated stuff, not necessarily correct. So there's lots of ideas out there in the marketplace in physics, and uh, Wolfram seems like a uh, pretty attractive one to me. I haven't seen some of the proofs, but uh, conceptually, it's very interesting. <clears throat> so if you're looking at the universe in terms of computation, of that being the stuff that underlies everything, then it's also a bit deterministic, in a sense. And uh, this may sort of lend credence to the idea that the higher levels of of what's going on with biology and everything are sort of in the same line although <clears throat> one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring it up is because I was gonna bring up quantum mechanics later and he had in his first episode with Lex Friedman a interesting take on how this theory of fundamental computation being the medium of the universe could lead to the situation in quantum mechanics which is one of the most divisive which is what exactly is an observer? Can observer, uh, you know, Schrodinger's cat, can the observer be affected? Can the wave collapse move towards a classical object in terms of being connected by a quantum event, like a uh, discharge of an alpha particle 
by the weak nuclear force of a decaying radioactive isotope. <clears throat> so, you know, the, this has been a really big deal, and Mark's Tigmark, or Mark Tig, Max Tigmark, sorry, is, uh, you know, another way of looking at what does this wave collapse actually mean? Now we're going to look at it in terms of the wave collapsing into every single part and that being the multiverse. There's a lot of uh, physicists like that because it makes the math easier. But basically, um, this idea of the quantum or the idea of the computational universe is very interesting to me. And I think that there might be something to that kind of physics. I think that, well, in terms of thinking about free will. And so I think this idea needs to be more informed by not just biology, which is easy to look at and see it as only mechanistic. Because we're mostly looking at genes and proteins and things like that, which seem to very much act in a mechanistic kind of way. But when you're talking about the flow of energy through the brain, via uh, sodium and action potentials and stuff, um, sodium and potassium and stuff, I mean, you've got, again, the electromagnetic fields and stuff that are acting outside of, and this is why you can do skin conductance and why you can put e um, EEGs on someone's head and actually read the brain waves and, and stuff like that. And you can even get into finer detail looking at more discrete parts of the brain with infrared and stuff now. But, um, I mean, it's well known that there are waves associated with this because that's how, you know, electricity works and the, the movement of, uh, of charge and things like that. So I think physics has to be a really big part of it. I, I may go back and try to read Roger Penrose's take on the brain in terms of quantum tubules and stuff like that. I got very, very close to reading it. But I think physicists have a lot to say about the brain versus just a, a, a standard biological interpretation. So, interestingly, I like to equate this what I see as this flow of energy as um, a sort of meta information that is like the epigenome. The epigenome is the structures like histones and stuff that are wrapped around DNA and the junk parts of DNA that get transcribed into RNA that go around and do things in the cell and how the genome getting bent and pulled by different protein structures that get built and uh, zip and unzip and create all these different structures um, is it constitutes a different layer of information and it's structural information like the layout of a building and that's that's very important and it's fundamentally different than I mean you could you could say in terms of epigenetics that there is something still physically materialistically going on but it is a shape in space 
versus some procedure of a metabolic process. And it just strikes me as different. I don't know if the epigenome is a particularly good example, but what I see it as something that is somewhat abstract. It has to do with shapes and it doesn't seem, epigenetics seems maybe somewhat uh, explainable in terms of just physical structures and interactions and, and direct materialistic explanations like that. But again, I think that the electrical uh, transmissions and stuff have an extra piece to them. Uh, so another question that I had was, how are the dials turned on the system's rules? So thinking about how things like this algorithm of figuring out how to explore and exploit and all the other amazing things that the brain can do, how exactly mechanistically um, are they being tuned in particular to in response to uh, environmental stimuli? So for a really long time there was a huge problem in trying to figure out where memories were stored there was this idea that they primarily started in the hippocampus um, along with neurogenesis of creating new neurons and then the they kind of started moving forward in the brain somehow uh, stored and phosphorylated nerve endings or or uh, in the changing of cellular structure based off of long-term potentiation which is a specific metabolic event that happens and changes the the structure of the neuron but at least as far as going towards i mean those things are are pretty straightforward in, in terms of how people think that they work and in terms of the fact that they're correlated with memory although not in a way that people really truly understand as far as i know but whether or not they were going towards the frontal lobe was kind of nixed uh, about in the 2013-2012, somewhere in there. While I was going to school, I talked about it with one of my professors, so it was pretty fresh at that point. Uh, but basically, I think, just like asking, how does this actually happen in life to where people's lives improve, how do they become self-actualized? How does that happen automatically versus not automatically, you can also ask, uh, how is that physically happening? So kind of, why would we improve is one question, and how does it physically happen would be the follow-on question. What dials are getting turned? And what do the algorithms look like in our brain? You know, what sort of electrical signal is the explore, exploit, uh, function. I mean at this point we don't even we're beginning to understand what individual neurons are doing but we still don't understand very well what they're doing. Um, and you know they're using things like viruses um, in order to trace the neurons that are occurring. Uh, they're also using like phosphorylated or um, fluorescently tagged um, sugars that's pet scans basically and uh you know tagging other things 
I read a study fairly recently about uh, silver in the brain. So most metals in the brain are somewhat toxic, but it turns out silver can be utilized by microglia, which are like uh, the uh, immune cells in the brain, in order to create something that helps reduce inflammation. But if it was not uh, taken up by the microglia, then it would be extremely toxic and would cause massive brain damage. So how, do the, how are the dials turned and what do the algorithms actually look like? What does the informational system, how is it being transduced? You know, it, is it literally just neuromodulators, uh, things like cannabinoids, neurotransmitters, the electrical signals themselves, the, the, the multinuity of the uh, metabolic reactions and everything, is that really all there is to this story? Or how do we actually formally describe the electrical signal, uh, particularly of these events? What, what's the shape of all the neurons that fire together? What's the specific structure of those neurons? Things like that and the, the rate of firing, none of this stuff is known. And I think that that would be really, uh, really useful because it would speak to how the physical universe in the form of biology actually creates the information that is the algorithm of I'm going to go in my environment and self-actualize. So... Let's see. Um, I finally wanted to talk about uh, quantum mechanics, which I briefly touched on, which is like observer-dependent states of particles, which is part of what Stephen Wolfram talked about, kind of explaining in a way through his own theory how you can have a system that, in a sense, doesn't exist for the observer until the observer becomes entangled with it because they have to be in order to gain the information out of it, of the computation. Which is interesting because as far as quantum mechanics goes, even though I don't understand much of the math, any of the math really, uh, conceptually, that's always been one of the weirder things for me, is say for instance if there's a computer in between the scientist and the device, the actual sensor that picks up the collapsing uh, position of the particle. So, you know, where's the electron floating around in the probability field of the hydrogen atom? Okay, we measure it, then we get the position. Now, how do we know when we're looking uh, at the computer that computed from the sensor, the laser or whatever, that that computer has it stored in there? without looking at it. Just knowing because it's in the computer, it's got to be there and it's, it's there the whole time. It's very philosophical, it's very strange, and I think once a bit more is understood about science, then it's going to maybe seem a little bit silly. We'll be like, oh yeah, duh, obviously. Uh, but at this point, it's still kind of an open question. So, the fact that certain particles aren't in a particular place adds statistical probability into the universe if it acts 
in in the way the Copenhagen interpretation or whatever, it just simply um, collapses whenever it's observed. There's other ideas about that too, and I don't want to get down in the weeds with physics. Uh, Max Tegmark's is a way of thinking about uh, collapsing wave functions. Like I said, a lot of people like to invoke the multiverse, but this actually doesn't get rid of the problem of determinism. It just says instead of the universe chugging along in a predetermined pattern based off of all the initial particles, so like Laplace's demon, knowing the initial conditions, energies, and momentums of all the particles in the universe, then it then can predict every moment in the future, which is to a certain extent classic in the classical sense of physics what Einstein's equations do. You can predict by running the simulation forward uh, in a way, and again Stephen Wolfram in certain ways thinks that when you think about it computationally you can't do this uh, with smaller things, and I, I, I believe that's what he said. But you essentially add a, a notion of randomness. If it's a Copenhagen interpretation, the wave function collapses, but it collapses in a random way. It collapses somewhere in the probability state of the uh, particle, which then affects the larger body of molecules and everything. And I think that the quantum effects of molecules in larger systems are more complex than we can deal with right now. And there's probably more science to be done there in terms of uh, like resonance and things because say you have three oxygen atoms together they're going to be equivalently um, giving off a uh, electronegativity their electromagnetic distribution will be equal even though based off of how they should be sharing electrons even probably probabilistically in the terms of quantum mechanics it's still not clear why that would necessarily be the case that's at least the way that I understand it <clears throat> so I tried to stay on track a bit there that's basically my uh, four questions and some of my thoughts about this I just saw you know some stuff about free will and I thought since I'm already thinking about this, and I've seen a bunch of stuff previously, uh, let me just go ahead and do this. So, thank you guys for listening.